your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is John Tamney. John is the editor of Real Clear Markets and author of one of the most enjoyable books on economics I've read, Popular Economics. John, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Hey, Don. Thanks for having me on. So fun or exciting is not usually the words that uh, you hear attached to a book on economics. And although I want to focus on um, the issue of inequality and things surrounding it, such as CEO pay, I definitely wanted to first ask you about your book because it is so different from everything else that uh, is written on this topic. What's it about and why did you decide to write it? Well, I decided to write it because I looked at what was out there and it just saddened me that economists had turned what is cheerful and joyous and about progress into charts and graphs and something that's boring and hard to understand. Uh, to me, economics is, is simple. If you can observe the world around you, if you like to watch sports, if you enjoy movies, if you're interested in famous businesses – you can understand tax policy, trade policy, monetary policy, and, and why regulations cannot work. And so I decided to take sports and movies and famous businesses to explain what's obvious so people can see how easy it will be to achieve much greater prosperity. Uh, the economics profession has failed us, so I wanted to do something different. So chapter seven of your book is called Wealth Inequality is Beautiful. So why don't you just start by giving kind of an overview of why you say that? Well, the first reason I would say it is, let, let's face it, an economy is just a collection of individuals. And so when you break it down to an individual, are we worth individual talents? Um, are we somehow worse off as individuals when we get to pursue that which makes us most unequal or most superior relative to our peers? Conversely, are we better off as individuals if we're not allowed to do what we're best at, if we're forced into lines of work that, that basically showcase our weaknesses? Well, I think we know the answers there. And so when you look at it as an, on an individual level, inequality is wonderful. It's just the process whereby we pursue what makes us great, what most animates our talents. But then it goes on to bigger things. You think, what is rising wealth inequality? It's merely the beautiful process whereby what, is, what was formerly enjoyed by the very few is made broadly available to everyone. It's the process whereby uh, the lifestyle gap between rich and poor is rapidly shrunk. To put it plainly, if you want to see today how the rich and poor will live in the future, just look at how the rich live today. That's the best prediction. But the only way to get there is for allow people to achieve. That's very counterintuitive because the way that people usually translate inequality or rising inequality is that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Yes, you're absolutely right. That That's the way it's, 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 it's spoken about, and that's vastly incorrect. Uh, the biggest enemy in the world of poverty, and nothing else comes close, is inequality. Inequality is what wipes away poverty because it's the process whereby what the rich enjoy is, again, made broadly available to those who don't have a lot. Now, this isn't an example of it per se, but I was in the McDonald's recently looking at a teenage girl. She was interviewing for a job there. 
The manager had to go behind the counter briefly, so I see her pick up a phone that had email on it, internet, um, and she started working on her phone. And you think about that. A couple years ago, what she had in her hands would have blown away the richest billionaire on earth. This is what the left and right are denigrating when they, when they make inequality a pejorative. They're knocking the process whereby what is only enjoyed by a few is made available to many. Yeah, I think what you're highlighting is part of what you're highlighting is the fact that inequality is not the same thing as poverty. It's just difference. And in, in a free country or a relatively free country, it's that we progress at different rates and that there's no such thing as everybody moving forward at the same rate. Yeah, uh, let's face it. Inequality is just about freedom in a free society. It's freedom to do that which makes makes you happiest, that which make, what, which most animates your talents. Let's face it, when we're doing what we do best, we're far more productive. It's not work. But you think about what it means for everyone. Um, inequality is once again an enemy of poverty. It's what, redu- what re- reduces the pain of being poor simply because it again gets the car used to be something that only the rich enjoyed. Now people of all income classes in the U.S. have cars. It used to be in the 80s that only the rich had cell phones. You look at that today, going to the poorest of neighborhoods, they're everywhere. Computers used to cost over a million dollars. Now the computers and our phones um, have exponentially more power and can do more things. Uh, My prediction is within the next 10 to 15 years, and I would guess 10, what's the biggest differentiator between the rich and poor today or middle class today? I would argue that it's access to private flying, private jets. I'll wager within 10 to 15 years, uh, people of all income classes will increasingly be flying privately around the country. Now, will inequality in terms of wealth result from that? Without question, and it will be beautiful. Let me take – you had a, a article in the Wall Street Journal a, a couple of days ago on CEO pay, and l- let me connect it this way. A lot of people have the question, how could it be that some people are making so much more than others? Is it really true that some people are that much more, 500 times more, 300 times more productive than others? What's your answer to that? Without question, they are, and the markets say it all the time. Uh, Any economy anywhere in the world is powered forward by the vital few. Um, Let's face it, we're not all equally talented at anything, and, and commerce is one of them. And so you look at companies throughout history, uh, Coca-Cola, Roberto goes, goes way to his family escaped uh, Castro's communism in the, in the early 60s. Um, he took over at Coke in 1980. He died of cancer in, in 1997. But during that time, the value of, Coca, of Coca-Cola, the business, rose from $4 billion all the way to $145 billion. Let's look at what Steve Jobs did with Apple when he returned to it. It was hurtling toward bankruptcy. Uh, Today, thanks to all of his innovations that he oversaw, it's the most valuable company on earth. Think of Disney with Michael Eisner. Um, The list goes on and on. Jack Welch, geez, some people are brilliant when it comes to running corporations. And I want to see them compensated as well as the markets will allow. Now, some would point out and have pointed out that for instance, you don't see such high pay for CEOs in other countries. And this suggests in their account that there's some shenanigans going on in America whereby they're getting far more than they warrant from the market. Well, it's, it's 
uh, let's face it, if, if we if people don't like how corporations pay CEOs, and, and I'll point out about Steve Jobs, about Goizueta, about Jack Welch, about Michael Eisner, they were vastly underpaid considering all the wealth they created for shareholders. Uh, but in ter- if people don't like what corporations choose to pay CEOs, it's their right to not own the company. We, we live in a free country. Okay, you think uh, the CEO is being overpaid? Sell your shares, and maybe you'll be proven right. Maybe not. You'd have been proven wrong in some of the examples I bring up, and there are many, many more. In terms of other countries, look, we're the United States. We're the richest, most entrepreneurial nation on earth. We elevate achievement more than most. It doesn't surprise me in other countries that don't have near our growth rates, don't have near our wealth. And I'm not talking about some fraudulent number like GDP, but actual growth. Um, It's no surprise that CEOs in other countries don't earn as much. They're not achieving as much. Yeah, and I think it's also notable that culturally in many of these countries, certainly Japan, countries like Germany, there's not – there's basically cultural ideas that say it's wrong to try to – uh, hire away a CEO from another company. And so they have, in effect, a restrict, they have less competition than they should for top talent, which would seem to mean that many of those CEOs are probably getting underpaid, not that American CEOs are getting overpaid. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think that, that there's no question about that, too. You think about Japan, you think, and think back to the 1980s, they would say that one of the great things about Japan is that people have jobs for life. Well, what's good about that? In the U.S., we move around. We're constantly... Uh, t- t- talented corporate boards, well-informed corporate boards are constantly bidding away top talent. To me, that's a great thing uh, because, again, you look at what one individual can do for a corporation. It's just unbelievable. Uh, and, and you think about someone like Goizueta, it wasn't just what he did for Coca-Cola. He utterly transformed Atlanta. There are so many examples of this, but one of them is, is the story of a pediatrician named Bill Warren. Uh, the beauty of wealth creation and inequality is that it creates enormous compassion if that's what people desire to do with what's their own. And so Bill Warren was a pediatrician. He invested his income in Coke shares, grew ex- enormously rich for having done so, and he shut down his, 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 his doctoring practice so that he could devote his life to helping inner-city Atlanta families. This is what happens when we free the individual up to achieve great things. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I think is really powerful about your approach. You've mentioned it several times, coming back to the individual. So even I think one of the most important points about CEO pay is not trying to parse out is every CEO or most CEOs getting paid what we think is reasonable, but rather each individual should be free to judge that for themselves. And as you say, buy or sell shares um, if he thinks that they're being overpaid. One, I think there's two other issues that need to be clarified to really have a right view on inequality though one is recognizing as uh, i think you definitely do that it's the only way that inequality uh, um, it's not just productive differences that lead to inequality today a lot of people can get rich by in effect feeding at the public trough yes they can but i would describe that as the opposite of inequality and i would describe that as anti-wealth Let's face it, when you can feed off of government, you're talking about wealth destruction almost by definition. Uh, The bailouts didn't make Wall Street richer. The bailouts have harmed Wall Street immensely. Why is Silicon Valley the richest area in the U.S., if not the world? Let's face it, it's the richest in the world. 
It is because the vast majority of its businesses fail. There are no bailouts for technology companies. And so thanks to that failure, you get constant evolution. Bad ideas are starved of capital so that good ones can receive it in abundance. And you constantly learn from what's not working. Wall Street today, and this is a tragedy because I love Wall Street. I want the bonuses there to be enormous. I want them to be much higher. But because I do, I also want failure to be borne by those on Wall Street. When their businesses can no longer uh, support themselves, they should be allowed to go under simply because that's the best way to keep finance and its utter importance to the global economy vibrant. Imagine what Silicon Valley would look like today if Friendster and Commodore Computers and Webvan had been bailed out. (laughs) That's really funny. At the expense of Facebook, at the expense of Dell, at the expense of these others, they would be a very, it would be a very poor place. And so you think about Wall Street, okay, people talk about how much they earn there. They would earn much more if failure was the constant. Because nowadays, let's look at, let's, let's talk the real truth. Morgan Stanley's CEO, former CEO, John Mack, told the present CEO, James Gorman, in 2013, he said, your number one client is the government. So Wall Street, rather than figuring out ways to get capital to the future Apples and Googles of the world, is spending time pleasing government. How is that creating wealth? It's the opposite of it. It's the shrinkage of wealth. Now, the second category that often gets brought up is that some people who end up incredibly wealthy didn't produce it. They're heirs. And the idea is that there's something unfair about that and that if we had a huge estate tax, not only – would it bring more money into the government, which these people think is a good thing, but that it would do it in a way that's fair and that didn't punish producers? But you have a really interesting take on that argument, and I wonder if you could talk about it. Yeah, well, uh, let's first of all say that we were born in the United States and we get to live here. It's really not fair to just about everyone else that we get to live in such an amazing country. So that's the first thing. If it's about fairness, uh, <laughs> boy. Um, the next thing I would say is, um, let's face it, what happens when the rich get to hold on to what is theirs? Because let's first of all, the other option is to let John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi uh, reallocate the wealth to favored friends. That, we know that's not a good thing. What happens when the rich hold on to it? Let's take Paris Hilton. Okay, if she puts it in the bank, her wealth is being redistributed to those who need a car loan college tuition, a small business loan. Banks don't just take in deposits to stare at the money. They immediately lend it out. She invests in the stock market. Her wealth is being redistributed to companies that need capital or to grow. If it's venture capital, private equity firms, um, her wealth is being redistributed to companies who on their backs about to die that need a capital infusion or a future, future Google or Microsoft. More broadly, what's got to be remembered is it's easy to invest in GE or Microsoft or AT&T. It's easy to preserve wealth if you've already got it. And so when you break up estates, you force those with wealth into defensive positions rather than intrepid positions. We get growth and we get capital entrepreneurs when people have more of it. You want the rich to keep as much of their wealth as possible because short of stuffing it under a mattress, they have to invest it. We have ESPN today because the Getty Oil Trust, John Paul Getty, the richest American in the 1950s, left behind an estate in the 1970s. They diversified out of oil into ESPN. It's one of the most valuable sports properties on earth. When we tax away the wealth of those who didn't, say, earn it, 
or taxing away the dreams of those who don't have it to begin with. I wonder if you can explain this point a little bit more in that people often will hear a sentence like, you know, capital helps grow businesses or something. But can you briefly outline like what is capital and what way does it help business growth, economic growth and innovation? Well, what is capital? Capital is not money. If capital were money, then uh, Guatemala, Guatemala could have as much money as we have in the United States, as much capital as we have because they could just run a printing press. What capital is, is access to real resources. And so when, you ta- when government taxes away wealth, what it's doing is destroying resources almost as a rule. And so why does that matter? there are no companies and no jobs. There are no entrepreneurs without capital. For someone to turn what is a concept into something real, into a real business, someone's got to delay consumption. Someone's got to save and invest rather than consume. Well, if government is taxing away the wealth of those who are creating it, it is reducing the amount of capital that will be made available to entrepreneurs. And that's what's so important about the rich. See, the rich can't possibly consume all the wealth that they have, whether they've created it or inherited it. And because they can't, they have the most that unless they're stuffing stuffing it under a mattress, they have the most to offer up to entrepreneurs and businesses because they've got to do something with it, whether it's a bank, venture capital firm, private equity firm, the stock market. They've got the most. And so when you tax away the wealth of the rich, you're taxing away the risk risk capital those who aren't rich need in order to pursue their dreams. Let's fit for me. I don't have a lot of disposable income after F uh, and so, you know, if, if you lower my taxes, you're not going to get much, but if you lower the taxes of Bill Gates, wow, think of what his wealth means for others. So one issue that I think kind of floats in the background of the inequality debaters related, um, is the issue of jobs and particularly the ability to get higher and higher paying jobs. We hear a lot about jobs being outsourced, about the government's need to create jobs. Um, Does that make any sense at all coming from your perspective? Uh, Zero sense. Let's face it, the richest countries in the world have historically destroyed jobs with great regularity. Um, The car, the tractor, the airplane, the internet, the computer. These are the, we're talking about the biggest job destroyers in the history of mankind. But did they put Americans in bread lines? Obviously not. It's through the, it's through the, it's thanks to getting rid of formerly necessary forms of work that new forms of work are created because it leads to more capital creation itself on its own. Um, you think of outsourcing. Let's face it. We all are expert outsourcers. Um, we don't cut our own hair. We generally don't raise the food that we eat. We don't make the computers that we type on. We don't build the apartments we live in. It's beautiful that we get to do that. That's all businesses are doing. They're doing things more efficiently. If I had to make the computer that I type on, raise the food that I eat, sew the clothes that I wear, um, and, and build the apartment that I live in, I would die an unemployed, unclothed, unfed, totally emaciated death. Thanks to free trade, I don't have to. More broadly, think about inequality. What does that mean? There's this urban myth that goes back decades and decades that Henry Ford, a great entrepreneur, raised the wages of his employees because he wanted them to buy his cars. Oh, please. He sold a lot more cars than that. 
He raised the wages of his, of his employees simply because it was too expensive to lose them. He did something, of, he committed a very self-interested, beautiful act. It was too expensive for him for, to have a 370% annual turnover at Ford Motor Company. So he raised the wage so much so that his workers wouldn't want to leave him. So when you, again, when you tax away the achievers, when, when, you, when you shackle the achievers, you make it less likely that they, they can spread the wealth in a positive capitalistic way whereby they pay them to do great work for them. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important point that I think has been totally lost in the minimum wage debate today, which is that there's this kind of assumption that entrepreneurs and capitalists have this power to pay people nothing, and that unless the government sets a minimum, you're not going to see wage growth. And I mean, there's a million things that you can say about that. For instance, the fact that wages were growing quite steadily before there was a minimum wage. But um, I think the point that you're highlighting is that it's to an interest of a businessman to pay workers as they become more productive, more and more and more to keep them so that he can continue to get rich. Absolutely. It's, it's as anyone knows, who's, you don't even have to own a business. As anyone who's ever worked knows, it's a problem. It's an economy sapping problem, a business sapping problem when someone quits. It really sets you back. And so there's an incentive among employers to pay workers more and more. And let's face it. What drives pay? It's investment. Investment is that there are no companies and no jobs and no wages without investors first. And so when we unshackle corporations, when we tax them less, when we let them keep more of what they own, that, that you're, they're, what you're doing is letting the investors who own them keep more of what they own, and they're going to invest more. And one of the ways to keep profits up is to keep good workers around. And it, my book, of course, uses sports a lot to make these points, but let's face it, the Cleveland Cavaliers have an incentive to keep LeBron James around, and they have an incentive to pay him enormous sums, because to lose him would be to see the value of the brand, the, the profits of the Cavaliers shrink. There's always an incentive to keep good workers around. Uh, I want to ask you some broader questions about communication. You mentioned you use a lot of stories in your book. Uh, in fact, I was pretty much blown away by the diverse range of interesting stories. And I'm pretty, I have my ear to the ground on a lot of things, but many of these I hadn't heard before. Most economists, I don't think are good communicators. How do you think about effective communication? Um, I think it's essential. I think back to what Walter Williams once told me that his professor at UCLA said, if you can't explain your economic ideas to anyone, you don't really understand them. And that's long been my argument. I think the economics profession is broadly a fraud. I mean, imagine a profession that presumes to measure the infinite decisions taking place among billions of individuals every millisecond of every day, yet they try to do it. I think the reason they're so boring is they don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand that economics is beautiful and easily understood just by looking at the world around you. My book, of course, points out, if you want to understand taxation, look at the migration of the Rolling Stones. You want to understand why regulation not only does not work but cannot work, look at University of Michigan football and its loss to Appalachian State in 2007. You want to understand the wonders of free trade? Look at why LeBron James chooses to play basketball only, even though he could play pro football if he desired, in addition to basketball. You want to understand monetary policy? Look at something as basic as the buffalo chicken wing. 
all the answers are there. They're simple. They're all around us. And shame on the economics profession for taking what is interesting and cheerful and all about the elevation of the individual and making it boring and impossible to understand. Uh, they've done they've done their profession a big disservice. They've done themselves a big disservice, and they've done people a big disservice. Maybe this overlaps, but what frustrates you most about supporters of free markets in the way that they argue? Oh, that's a good question. Wow. Um, I think one of them is certainly, this is something I've discussed with you before. I've discussed it with Yaron Brook, um, Harry Benswang or two. It amazes me how many people on our side act as though inequality is a pejorative instead of what it actually is, this celebration of individual human achievement that enriches all of our lives. That, that knocks me over quite a bit. Um, I, it also frustrates me that so many free marketeers talk constantly about, um, they, they can't make the basic point that government spending and government itself doesn't help the economy, that it's a big burden to it, that when government spends, it's John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi robbing us of massive amounts of economic advancement. I would throw another one in. I don't understand all why so many free marketeers focus on deficits. Um, to me, all government spending is deficit spending. Governments have no resources. Government deficits are just finance. What the Congress say? I would take an annual budget deficit of one trillion on one trillion, one point one trillion of spending any day of the week over a balanced budget annually of three point five trillion. The latter is what speaks to massive government overreach into the economy. I just want these guys spending less, and so I think the focus should be on that. But it should be cheerful. It shouldn't be about oh, we're going to become Greece. You know, guess what? We're not going to become Greece. Americans are way too talented. The Greek Americans who live here don't resemble at all those who stayed behind in Greece. What we should instead be talking about is how much wealthier, how much more advanced we would be if government weren't consuming so many of the resources we created. How we we would have licked cancer by now. How we'd all own private jets. How we'd all have access to something that would make the internet look dated. That's the result of government spending less. So to focus on deficits is just to bore people, and, and people don't believe it. Talk about how much better we off are all are off when government consumes less of what we create. That last point reminds me of uh, we had George Will on this show a while back, and I asked him a similar question. His answer was, be of good cheer. People have infinite things to do other than read uh, a column or a political commentary, and if you're dreary and down, they are very likely to avoid you. Oh, I, I love that. I, I, that, that. I'm so glad that, that he said that on your show. It's wonderful. I, I think back to Ronald Reagan. Let's face it, Reagan didn't get anything perfect. But he won by a landslide, as most know, in 1980. And what's always fascinated me is that um, one of the few voting blocks that he lost was the block of Americans who thought our problems were insurmountable. They just didn't understand his optimism. And I think people need to be reminded of that today. What we went through in the 1970s, what Reagan and others brought us back from, was exponentially worse than the present. It doesn't even come close. And so I hear people, pundits saying America is over, that our best days are, are behind, that we're staring at France in the rearview mirror. I say they don't have a clue about our history, and they're also wrong. 
we came back from much worse in the 1970s, and we should be optimistic about what we can achieve today, and we should be cheerful about it. It is simple. Economic growth and prosperity are so, so simple. They're just about removing the government from the four basics, reducing their burden in terms of taxes, regulation, barriers to trade, and unstable money. You do that, prosperity here would be enormous. How can people find out more about you, the book, what you're up to? Uh, well, um, I edit realclearmarkets.com, um, so you can always find my work there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at johntamney.com. Uh, the book is, of course, available on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble and, and, again, most bookstores. Um, so that's probably the best way to do it. I'm on Forbes on Fox every Saturday. Um, so it, it's it's a wide variety of things. And, and, and uh, again, I think that I, I strongly recommend the book, not because it's by me, but because finally it's, it's something that, that says what's true and, and describes what's true, that economic growth is simple and economics is something anyone can understand. It shouldn't just be misexplained. My guest today has been John Tanney. John, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thank you very much for having me. So I want to highlight one aspect of this issue that we talked about. Economic inequality is not the same thing as poverty. It refers to differences, not deprivation. If the richest people saw their incomes triple and the rest of us saw our incomes double, inequality would increase. It would increase by a lot, but everyone would be better off. And so the question really is, why should we care about economic differences? And there's no answer to that question, at least not an answer that invo doesn't involve the word envy. So the only rational question is, did an individual get his income through productive achievement and voluntary trade? Or did he get it by force or fraud? Did a person earn his income or did he get his hands on the unearned? Now, some people sensing that that's the right question have tried to distinguish between good inequality and bad inequality. Good inequality is the kind of inequality, they say, that emerges from the fact that some people are really, really productive and some people are just productive. And bad inequality, they would say, is the kind of inequality that emerges from things like cronyism theft, fraud, people getting their hands on what they don't deserve. But that is the wrong way to think about the distinction. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. We don't praise an entrepreneur because he created good inequality. And we don't condemn a Bernie Madoff because he created bad inequality. And heck, we don't condemn a bum who robs, robs a doctor for creating bad equality. The issue is there's no reason to put these things in terms of economic equality or inequality. The issue is not the relationship, whether people become more or less equal as a result of these activities. The, the real issue is, are these activities positive, productive? Are they about what people earn? Or are they destructive? Are they about people getting the unearned? So from my perspective, economic inequality is a useless concept. It's totally useless. There's only one kind of inequality that matters, or rather one kind of equality that matters, and that's political equality, equality of rights. It's that the government treats us as equals, as people who all have the same rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. And the question that should alarm us is if some people are receiving political privileges that allow them to stop others from succeeding or to take what others have earned. Now, the inequality alarmists are opponents of political equality. They 
it's precisely what they want to do is to take what others have earned and to interfere with other people's ability to succeed in order to bestow special favors and privileges on some. What they really want to do is to just shift around who gets what privileges. They object to the 1% getting special privileges, not because they're opponents of special privileges, not in the name of defending political equality, but in order to give those to the, quote, 99%. Now, sometimes we hear that the left goes too far, that they don't just care about political equality, but economic equality. Or we hear that they care about equality too much. But that is totally wrong. You can't be for inequality across the board. You have to make a choice. Are you for political equality or economic equality? And as I think this interview did a very good job of highlighting, economic equality is unfair and destructive. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 